0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 227, Alfred's War for the Mind. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the BritishHistoryPodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And not even a fancy latte, like the one with shots of hazelnut, or with a cinnamon dulce whip, or, you know, that one made from beans roasted in unicorn blood. Just a regular latte. That's how cheap membership is. And thank you very much to Jennifer, Paul, and John for signing up already. And a big thank you to Misha and another member who'd prefer to stay anonymous, who, in the spirit of the holidays, paid for several gift memberships and asked me to give them to members of the community who had to cancel due to financial difficulties. This community will never cease to amaze and inspire me. And following in your example, Z and I decided to do something similar for even more members. So thank you for that. Oh, and Londoners, we're going to be doing a meetup in London next month. Current plans are that we're going to do it on January 21st, that's a Saturday, so stay tuned for further details. And now, on with the show. The last episode ended with an account by Ethelweird, which told us that after the arrival of Athelnoth, Alfred was attacking Guthrum on a daily basis. So Alfred was no longer just trying to survive by hiding in the marshes. Now he was actively trying to take his kingdom back. And most accounts of Alfred's war just stop there and move on to the next marquee battle. But something critical would have been happening on Athelney, And it's something that will help shed light on the situation that his band was in and the war that they were fighting. And while our sources here are sparse, we're fortunate that similar wars to Alfred's have been fought all throughout history. And many of them were much better documented. See, the thing is that in order to survive while launching daily attacks against Guthrum, Alfred and Athelnoth would have had to use asymmetrical tactics. They would have had to launch hit-and-run strikes and ambushes. So they'd be using the same tactics that we see throughout history in Asymmetrical War. And we will be talking about these tactics in detail at a later episode. But there's another part of this story that I want you to know about first. See, the external war that Alfred and Athelnoth were engaging in The part where his men were infiltrating Guthrum's Wessex and bringing the war to him was just a small part of what the fight was about and how it was being fought. There was another fight that Alfred had to win, and this one would have been internal. And to understand the what and the how of his fight, we first need to understand the why. We need to understand Alfred's goals. And it's with this internal war that Alfred... Starts to wear in his title. You see, asymmetrical warfare, also called irregular warfare, has all kinds of different types, and each has its own strategic advantages and challenges. And the irregular war that Alfred found himself fighting was, in many ways, a classic example of a guerrilla-style war. In classic guerrilla fighting, there's no institutional support and hardly any resources. Alfred, for example, wasn't a small offshoot of a larger army, like an allied Native American tribe during the American Revolutionary War. Instead, Alfred and his band were the only force in town. And while it does seem that he had broad support from his former subjects, the actual fighting force, his warriors, were still hopelessly outnumbered. Now, thanks in no small part to the overreach and violent punitive actions of Guthrum, Alfred had met the critical requirement of widespread belief in the illegitimacy of the system. But that's only one of the necessary steps to overthrowing power. And honestly, it's not even really a step. It's merely a foundation that would allow Alfred to take steps. The door had been opened, but Alfred would still have to walk through it. And a question that would have been weighing heavily on Alfred's mind is, how on earth do you carry out a war against the army of the state when your forces consist of only a few people hidden in the wilds? I mean, it's one thing to say, that's it, these people are illegitimate and we're going to fight them. But it's quite another thing to actually do it. For Alfred, and for many others throughout history who found themselves in this situation, it would have been a profound act to move from talking and grousing and feeling aggrieved to actually pursue a regime change through acts of warfare. And the deck was really stacked against them, so they would need a damn good plan if they were going to succeed. Now, these days, you can read all manner of books on irregular forces and how small bands of rebels can bring massive armies to their knees with the right strategy. You can learn what works, what doesn't, and even get first-hand accounts of their tactics from the fighters themselves. And granted, Alfred would have had the privilege of being one of the few people in Wessex to have access to books throughout his life. But Sun Tzu wasn't likely to be one of them. Very little information was out there, and even the information that did exist would have been hard to reach. And on Athelney, it would have been virtually impossible. There aren't many libraries in swamps, even back then. So, Alfred had to rely on what he gleaned from his studies during his youth, what he learned while he was active in the field, and of course, he'd also have to rely on whatever advice the remnants of his court could provide him. But the responsibility would have been staggering. The pressure would have been enormous. Remember, history is only written when we look back. For Alfred, in this moment, the future was as unknowable as her own. There was nothing certain about his eventual survival, let alone his victory. And yet, it really is at this point that we start to see the true greatness of Alfred. And that greatness seems to be rooted not just in intellect, but in a strong sense of identity. We've been talking for ages about how Alfred was sowing the seeds for a broad English identity. But here, we're seeing Alfred doing something different with his identity experiment. He's seeking to break the old order, at least in the short term. And he was also working to convince all of his men to do the same. It would have been a monumental feat. And it would severely test the trust and faith that his men placed in him. But he had little choice. If they held to the old ways, they would all die. See, the truth is that wars like Alfred's, guerrilla wars, have rules. They might seem anarchic, but they actually have codes. Not codes born out of honor, but the sort of codes that come out of history again and again because they're formed through the same structure of incentives. These rules that arise out of those incentives run counter to the rules that typically dominate society. And that's because the goals of a guerrilla aren't the same as the goals for a conventional warrior. Conventional warriors... Warriors like those who served Guthrum, and warriors like those who served Alfred in the marshes, typically fight for territory. For them, that's what war looks like. You take and hold a position, and that's how you know who's winning and who's losing. That's the war that Alfred and his soldiers would have been used to. They would have done it countless times in their lives, both in training and in actual battle. The on was built specifically for this type of war. Bravely forming a shield wall and fighting honorably was tied up into who they were and how they served their people. But Alfred would have known that he didn't have the soldiers necessary for that. If they marched out of the marshes and formed a wall, they would die. And so he decided to buck tradition and fight in a different way. And we see from the record that Alfred wasn't planning to fight for territory. All indications are that he was preparing to fight in the guerrilla style. And while Guthrum sought land and territory, Alfred's battlefield would be something else entirely. He would be fighting over morale. Every assault into Wessex that he made would have been calculated to communicate to his former subjects the weakness of King Guthrum. And also the strength. Of Alfred. It's a goal that's remarkably consistent in these kinds of wars, and the reason for that is really simple. Alfred needed to convince people to join his army. If this war consisted of the combined rods of Alfred and Athelnoth, they would eventually lose. Simple attrition would ensure that. So what he needed to do is seek out further reinforcements. Because with additional forces, he could build additional columns and open up new fronts in the war. So, while Guthrum was holding territory, Alfred was focused upon the mind, and he would need to violate Anglo Saxon norms in order to do that. Now, this is something that should not be underestimated. These were honorable warriors. Actually, if you have the time, now would be a good chance to go and re-listen to the episodes on Anglo-Saxon warfare. Remember, a lot of members of Alfred's band would have begun their war training at the age of eight. And all that time, they would have been conditioned for an Anglo-Saxon style of combat, what they understood as honorable combat, both physically and mentally. But now, Alfred was asking his men to abandon their morals. Abandon their ancestors, abandon the old ways, and just trust his judgment. That's no small thing. Everything that they knew was being left behind. There would be no shield wall, no hazel, no taking of a hill and proudly standing in the view of God and men. No looking your enemy square in the eye. There would be nothing that Alfred's men recognized as bringing themselves victory or glory or honor. Instead, Alfred was asking them to fight from the shadows, telling them that they would sneak behind enemy lines to sabotage and steal, that they would run from the enemy any time they met resistance, that they would fight, not like warriors, but like bandits. They would fight like the pagans. The truth is that the biggest obstacle that Alfred would have to face, even before he left the marshes, was Anglo-Saxon culture. Everything that he was asking his warriors to do would have felt anathema to them. It threatened their sense of duty, morality, and every reflexive feeling of this is the right way to do it. And Alfred could talk about tactics and logic all he liked. And he could say, this is in your self-interest. But Alfred's band would have been awash with feelings. And people act against their own self-interest all the time due to feelings. In fact, if you think you're immune to this, you're likely wrong. Take an example from just a few years ago. Do you remember during the 2008 financial collapse how people refused to file bankruptcy even though that was the best financial decision they could make? Millions refused to file and protect themselves, even though they knew that they couldn't pay their bills and that they could lose everything in the long run. In fact, it didn't even matter to them that banks and businesses were at that exact same time filing for bankruptcy themselves or traveling to Congress to ask for bailouts. And the truth is that many have been sold a mortgage that their bank knew they couldn't afford. So people were given a false hope and told to ignore their concerns, and in some cases outright lied to in order to get them to buy these mortgages. And now those same mortgages were taking them and their families under. And the law has an escape valve for this situation. Actually, for exactly this situation. And it also has the benefit of persuading lending institutions from selling risky loans. And yet, very few people use the tool that was provided to them. And instead, we kept seeing people going down with their little ship. Why? Well, because it felt wrong. Filing for bankruptcy felt like a shirking of responsibility. It felt like expecting something for nothing. It felt like a defeat. And I'm betting that many of you listening are thinking, it doesn't feel wrong. It is wrong. That's how strong that feeling is. And I can talk about the financial benefits of bankruptcy and how it can actually protect the economy due to increased stability until I'm blue in the face. But I'm not going to change many people's minds. Why? Because of feelings. Because of culture. Our culture in this case. Getting past someone's feelings in order to actually be able to discuss facts is incredibly hard. In my experience, that was a large part of what made being a lawyer so difficult. Feelings are armor against new information. And that was what Alfred would have been facing off with. A boatload of feelings that said, this just isn't how we do things. But... In Alfred's favor was the fact that Anglo-Saxon culture was complex. And yes, there are rules about honorable combat, but there are also rules about honorable service. There are beliefs about how you stayed loyal and served your liege even after his death. And all of this would have resulted in Alfred's band wrestling with a moral quandary. On the one hand, they were shaming their ancestors by failing to fight in the proper way. But on the other hand, to abandon their king would also shame their ancestors. And interestingly, into this fight came another element, and it was probably the thing that tipped the scales. It was that thing that had been introduced to the West Saxons by Alfred's grandfather, the concept of the divinity of rule. Thanks to the Carolingian reforms, the West Saxons knew down to their bones that the kings of Wessex were chosen by God. Defying Alfred didn't just run the risk of angering their king. It ran the risk of incurring the wrath of God. The power of that belief should not be underestimated. And it's probably why Alfred didn't have a mutiny on his hands from day one. And there's a flip side to this divine rule aspect. It also meant that Alfred was God's chosen leader. Consequently, it wrapped him in the mantle of a divine mandate for victory. And that too should not be underestimated see the truth is that guerrilla wars like alfred's at least the successful ones are built upon a sense of inevitability they're fueled by concepts of the righteousness of their cause they generally share the sense that the guerrilla band at their core are fighting against an illegitimate tyrannical force and they're seeking justice and because of that sense of faded righteousness The fighters are freed from the normal code of honor that tends to dominate the warrior class. So to get to the point where they were truly freed, Alfred would need every member of his band to know in their heart that their victory was assured and that it would come as a direct result from their efforts. Now, more modern rebellions have talked about this in terms of the revolutionary spirit. But in Alfred's time, it probably would have been discussed as divine mandate. That old battle cry of deus volt, God wills it. Without that, they simply wouldn't have the strength to handle what would come next. And we see this sense of predestined victory employed by all manner of cultures throughout history. Churchill radiated it throughout World War II. His most famous speech was beautifully calculated to hit at exactly these concepts. The idea that we'll fight on every battleground that we have and that we will never surrender. Why? Because the invasion of Britain was a possibility. But our eventual victory was certain. The only way we lose is to surrender. That perspective is absolutely necessary. And that fact was no less true in the ninth century. Alfred's band would need to see their cause not just as righteous, Not just as the only correct thing to do, but as fated for victory. All Guthrum was doing was delaying the inevitable. Before anyone left Athelney, that single fact would need to be indelibly printed on the minds of every member of the Werod. After all, without that, how could they hope to convince others to join their cause? That divine mandate for justice, combined with their underdog status would have been a powerful feeling. Probably even more powerful than their feelings around warrior culture. And consequently, my guess is that that was what would allow them to break their cultural constraints and fight in the ways that they needed to. But as you imagine this moment in history, I want you to consider the possibility that it might have included some people you might not have otherwise thought of. You see, we've seen another rule come out of this type of war over and over again. And it's thanks to the incentives that appear to be fundamental to a guerrilla undertaking. Something curious happens in many of the guerrilla bands that we've seen in history. And it's not curious that it happens, so much as it's curious how consistently it happens. Across cultures and across time, in guerrilla war, we see women in combat roles. This is so consistent that we even see it in regions that have cultural prohibitions against women in combat, or even women in any kind of leadership role whatsoever. But necessity is a hell of a thing, especially when combined with that sense that you're already breaking a bunch of rules. What's one more rule broken if it means another warrior on the line? Now, none of the sources mention women in Alfred's band. And the only time we hear of women involves a myth of a woman baking. So we can't say for certain that there were any women on Athelney. But something to consider is how culture can reassert itself following a guerrilla fight. For example, one of the more famous guerrilla conflicts was the American Revolution. And women were deeply involved in the Revolutionary War. As in, there were women acting as combatants and firing cannons on the battlefields but how often do you hear about women from that period doing anything other than sewing a flag or giving birth to George Washington? Culture reasserts itself. And Alfred and Asser would have been even less eager to talk about the presence of women in combat than we are. So were women on Athelney or working as part of Alfred's network within Somerset? I don't know. But I don't think it's out of the question. Frankly... I think it's more likely than not, considering how desperate they were, and how Alfred's war was a sign that the cultural rules were being broken down. And this cultural aspect is really what I wanted to talk about, because these cultural rules, and the violation of them, are incredibly powerful aspects of this conflict, but they're often ignored. Many times, fights like these are spoken about purely as if we're watching a board game. This piece moves here, then this piece counters. But to only focus upon that is to miss out on one of the biggest weapons that rebel armies like these have. Culture. Guerrilla war is asymmetrical. It's a fight of a very small force against a very large one. The state. And the temptation is to view that asymmetry and assume the guerrilla army is in the weaker position. And there are certainly significant disadvantages to being a guerrilla. But on a tactical and strategic level, the guerrilla has some advantages that allow him or her to go toe to toe with even the most powerful ruling orders. And at the heart of much of it has to do with what Alfred was doing right here, this break with cultural norms. Alfred and his forces would be able to fight in ways that normally wouldn't be acceptable. They would be able to do what Guthrum had been doing for years. They would be able to violate social norms for their own advantage. But now that Guthrum was the state, he didn't have that advantage. He was no longer leading the attack upon the system. He was the system. And consequently, he was expected to abide by Anglo-Saxon culture. Now granted, this was Guthrum, so whether or not he would follow Anglo-Saxon culture was another matter. But that's what would have been expected of him. And suddenly, there were consequences for him should he break those rules. Any violations of Anglo-Saxon culture could, and likely would, further delegitimize him in the eyes of his subjects. Functionally, this meant that Guthrum was placed in a situation where he would either have to fight with one arm behind his back, or he'd have to risk royally pissing off his subjects and incur further rebellions elsewhere in his kingdom. Guthrum was left with no good options. And meanwhile, Alfred and his band could fight as an irregular force, engaging in hit-run tactics, setting up ambushes, and doing all manner of things that would be unthinkable for an honor-bound governmental force. Provided, though, that they follow one more additional rule. And it was a very important one. And just like illegitimacy, escaping cultural constraints, and having a faded sense of victory, this rule was also centered upon the mind. And you might have worked this rule out for yourself already. What's the difference between Alfred's army, or any guerrilla army, and a gang of raiders? Raiders have common goals, just like Alfred's army. They would likely have a charismatic leader. They were violating cultural norms for their own tactical benefits. They were brave and had fighting experience. They understood tactics. They believed that they would be successful in the raid. They had almost all the same characteristics that Alfred's band had. But they lack one. And this isn't just the case for Alfred's army. Any successful guerrilla army has one specific quality that it needs and keeps that army from being nothing more than a gang of bandits. Have you guessed what it is? The support of the people. Without the support of the people, Alfred's army, just like a gang of criminals, would eventually be hunted down and wiped out. The thing that makes Alfred's army strong isn't the individual skills of his warriors, though that no doubt helped. The thing that made them strong was the support of the people. He already had the support of Elderman Athelnoth, and that did grant his army local legitimacy. And I suspect that he already had his forces cultivating a network of informants throughout eastern Somerset, because that's the most likely way that he would have reached Athelnoth in the first place. And we also have these odd myths that seem to center around Alfred on Athelney and highlight his goodness, which also would have helped. But the other thing that we've learned from these kinds of wars is that they tend to be most effective in areas that are already oppressed. And so ironically, by ravaging Somerset, Guthrum gave Alfred a gift. The local population was already suffering at the hands of the new ruling class. They were already chafing at Guthrum's rule. And culturally, he was already seen as illegitimate. So now, all Alfred needed to do is provide those people with an outlet. And so it's likely that in the lead up to this war, as they were looking for supporters, the forces of Alfred were also explaining how they were fighting for the people of Wessex. How this was a war for all of them and for God. And they were also probably pointing out that if a harvest went bad, how that wouldn't have happened if Alfred was king. This was all a sign of God's disfavor. In more modern times, we've seen guerrilla fighters carrying out dual roles, at one moment attacking the establishment, and in the next seeking the favor of the local underclass. This is tactical, and it's also part of the same fight. What they're doing is encouraging the local population to see their personal class struggle and the guerrilla struggle as being one and the same. For example, many times we see guerrillas providing food and supplies to local villages. And I'm not saying that gorillas never provide food to the poor out of compassion or humanity. Nor am I saying that this behavior was purely tactical. People are complicated creatures, and we can do things for all manner of reasons. But the fact remains that it is a common tactic. And it's also an effective one because of how it shifts the mindset of the population. Alfred would have almost certainly realized that the people were going to starve as a result of Guthrum's ravaging. And he was in the marshes if he brought some fish to the hungry he could provide at least a little bit of help and he could signal that he was the rightful king chosen by god fish were an incredibly potent symbol and alfred would have had to have been a fool not to take advantage of it however we don't know for sure we just have some myths but we do know that many successful guerrilla armies provide supplies to the local peasant population And so all we can do is make educated guesses as to whether or not Alfred might have done the same. But regardless, in this fight, at this stage, the main battlefield was in the mind. Even when they were out there on the field. Alfred needed to keep his warriors on board. He needed to weaken Guthrum's position. And he needed to convince the people in the local area that his cause was not only just, but it was a reflection of their own cause. And he was doing a good job of it, because he had enough support to be able to launch physical assaults upon Guthrum's forces. And so now, his fight was no longer a whisper campaign. He was no longer laying the groundwork. He was now bringing war to the Scandinavian army that dominated Wessex. And, as is the case with most wars like these, the goals here would have largely been mental. There would be physical tactical goals with each attack, of course. But the main fight would still be in the mind. And Alfred's tactics and the Scandinavian response will be the subject of our next episode. Guthrum is about to realize that he may have bit off more than he could chew with this young sickly king. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast, and you can find links to all our other communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.